0: You came over with your parents over to Britain. And I wanted to ask you, at home, did your parents try and merge the Jamaican culture with this new British culture that you were being exposed to?
1: Okay. There wasn't anything conscious about merging cultures. We just... People just lived their lives. Um, In in the house that we lived in, in, in Battersea, we ate mostly... Jamaica, well, Jamaican food, or food that was prepared in a Jamaican way, whatever it is that they, they could afford, really. Um, we listened to um, whatever music I would imagine was popular in Jamaica. I remember the... I remember the... the, the is it what it's called? Blue Spot? It was a gramophone that we had in the front room. Um, playing, who can I remember? Lloyd Price, staggerly, I don't know if he was popular in Jamaica at the time, but there was, certain, there was a certain um, culture that was common to migrants, and I, I don't think there was anything conscious uh, about, about really, you know, living in a particular way. They just lived their life the way that they found comfortable and which and, and supported each other. And of course, it would have been. Um, mostly Jamaican, because they, everybody who came to the house would have been um, Jamaican. Occasion, well, I wouldn't say, I wasn't sure everybody was Jamaican, certainly Caribbean, and I'm pretty sure the majority would have been Jamaican, some would have been Caribbean. Um, I don't remember many white people coming to a to house, even though we lived on a street um, in Battersea, where there was... There would have been a certain, uh, most, of, most of the street would have been white at that time. but I think in that era as well it would, a lot of the people would have been white working class. Um, I think Battersea was that way um, constructed at the time. yeah you know? So I think it was Jamaican migrant culture I would say rather than uh, any attempt to retain it's what they had and what they used to survive
0: really. And what kind of reception did you and your family receive when you moved to Battersea?
1: Um I was—I think they would they start—they'd there just probably some months before we came. Um, there wasn't—there wasn't—I um, can't remember many overt acts of racism at that time. I think there were there had been talk about that kind of thing before. And I know that that happened in Notting Hill, but we—I didn't experience it um, so overtly um, in Battersea. There was a certain amount of that in school, you know, being called names, you know, like "wog," those, those that kind of thing, that, with, with the children. But certainly on on the street where I lived, I don't remember um, much of that. Um, um quite the opposite in a different kind of way i know that we were we were certainly were very poor and i remember the lady at the at one end of the street the white family who left um clothes and shoes for us on the on the doorstep. That that kind of um i don't know if it was meant to demean but certainly a recognition that it was a poor family living in that house where we lived um but the all tried name-calling, I didn't experience it that much on the streets. It was more likely in schools, but then I didn't really go out very much.
0: And could you talk to me about how you got involved with the Black Panther and the first time that you were aware of the movement?
1: Oh, you! I remember I came to England when I was nine, so had I went through one year of primary schooling and then of course the a whole six years in secondary school so it's a long accumulated period to go from uh, coming to coming to England and then becoming involved in the movement um, if you look if I think I talked about in the article I wrote that it wasn't my first example I think Certainly, my early experiences of school led me to see that certain things were not right. The way I was placed in school, um, in primary school, I was from primary school, I was placed in what was then called a secondary modern. I don't remember taking uh, an 11 plus, but I know I must have done at some point because we would have taken it in the last year at school. I don't know what happened to it. My parents were not involved in... In my education at all, they didn't really see the need to go, you know, go into the school and talk to the teacher and, and do any of that stuff, which seems to be, you know, absolutely necessary. Which turned out to be absolutely necessary and is certainly necessary now. So I was placed in a second modern mo- secondary modern school, Lavender Hill School for Girls. I was in the sea the stream. I don't think that was the lowest, but it was like the middle stream, the middle stream. I think there was probably five streams in the school. And um, I found the work there that it it wasn't very, it was not particularly challenging, and I also found a lot of the girls at the school really quite racist. I was always involved in in quite a lot of fights. and. but I was also good at doing the work. So every year I would be, I would be top of the class and okay. And then eventually I had a P, uh, yes, a P teacher who I didn't know that directly at the time, but I think she was going to the head teacher and telling, and, and telling her that she should move me out of that particular stream because every year I'd come top of the class and eventually I think it was in the fourth year, after three years in a row, she moved me to the top stream. Um, I don't know if they were so keen to move me because I was known as somebody who was was always in fights, really. And those fights are really about children calling me names. So, So I was experiencing that kind of, you know, the casual brutality of young people. So you, you 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 asked me what had led me to the um, to the um, to the BPM. So those kind of early experiences uh, of, of of racism from you know overt racism school children, but recognizing that the school system had really you know had really misapplied my my abilities uh, to you know mis- misunderstood my abilities but not, I wasn't the only one there are other black girls in that, in that school who could have gone on and in fact did go on they went into further education and and, and had great careers so I was just lucky that one teacher showed an interest in me because I was fighting really. And she realised I was restrained, so she kept going to the the head teacher. So it was that experience, lived experience, but there was also experience from books because I was a great reader, and I discovered my greatest discovery was James Baldwin at that particular time, and and all of his work, I was reading from the age of 15, 15 onwards, and he became a kind of commentary. About what happens to black people in these in these societies in these metropoles, and that's how I saw it. I was in a strange land, and this was this was what was happening to me. So the so the experience of reading him, of of seeing what was happening in America with people like um, Malcolm X reading Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and having those two sets of ideas jostling in my brain about, you know, what, how is it, how do we move forward? You know, this is what, what is the best way for us to move forward? Um, I joined uh, a black arts workshop that was organized by somebody called Ansel Wong. I don't know if you've met him, but I know he was, um, he was, He worked with the BLF at one point, and and the Black People's Information Centre. And he was the director of this black arts workshop that we had. And what we used to do, it was like a small creative youth group. We used to um, dramatize, learn, dramatize, and perform um, black consciousness poetry to youth groups across the country. And we did that for about two years, and that also helped to um, raise our level of consciousness as well. And at that time, after I was in that group, I went to I went away to, to to college to train to become a teacher. And it's only when I came back down to London after three years, you know, 2021, that I decided that I I really wanted to go into a community where I could give back. And the community that seemed most appropriate at that time, I was living in Battersea. My parents lived in Battersea, but Battersea wasn't a black community. It was not where I could see myself. I couldn't see myself reflected in, um, in in Battersea, but in Brixham, which was where my parents started. In fact, so I knew it. I knew its history, and I knew my parents' history it. That is where I went um, and started teaching, and. I, I started teaching in a school that was accidentally almost totally black, because that's where the children, primarily Jamaican children, went. Um, At the same time I started teaching at that school, um, I was in contact with Olive, Olive Morris, because we went to the same school, she was two years below me, but she told me of certain things that had happened to her in Brixton, in fact, um, with her being attacked by the police, and we started talking about the behavior of the police around young black people, because all of us, there's a big contingent of us who were growing up at that time. And once you reach a certain age, you do start to walk on the streets and you want to feel you can go about, you know, not being escorted by parents, but go uh, uh, um, in, your, in your own groups of being uh, accosted and, and stopped by the police and she recounted some of those incidents and told me about that group, which I actually had heard about, um, the Black Panthers that she was a member of, She was now a member of, and I said, you know, let me go and see and find out what they're about. And that's how I came to be there, through, as I say, my lived experience, what I'd read and thought about, and also the experience of the example of Olive,
0: and um, I want to backtrack uh, just a second. I found it quite interesting when you were talking about, obviously, the strong influence that was coming from America, because that's a theme yeah. that I've seen in all of my interviews. Everyone's talking about this American literature that was moving into Britain and creating the movement over here. And um, were you aware of early, um, the early moments of the Black Power movement? So with Stokely Carmichael coming to the Roundhouse, and uh, Obi Igboona's uh, "Destroy This Temple," uh, but were you aware of that early activity, or was it mainly coming from America?
1: Um, I I was aware of it, but i I think memory is a funny thing. You you remember not what you want to remember. You remember the things that are most that are most. Resonant, and the, the things that were most resonant to me are the things that I, I definitely experienced. I don't remember um, going. I said, in fact, I would have remembered. I'm sure I'd have remembered if I'd gone and seen Stokely Carmichael. I knew of it, but I don't remember it impacting it uh, on me in the same way. That's why I talk about memory. You can only be truthful about the things that, are re- that really that really resonate with you now. You know 50 years later and it is that you know nearly 50 years later i when you mention that that is not strange i'm not saying it's strange but i'm saying it's not something i think that led me to to be a part of that it's more being in brixton and teaching in that school and and talking to parents and talking to people around me that led me to that. So, so, led me to that movement. So, I think I was more community-oriented than, you know, being led by some big important figures. I have to say that I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a follower in that way. I, I, perhaps respond more to those um, grassroots um, needs and ideas as I see them. I would, um, after after um, school um, I'm more than likely i would be in the house of the, the parents of uh, the children I taught and we'll be talking about you know what they were doing and are they going to keep themselves safe rather than in anything else.
0: And what was your first impression of the Black Panther movement at the time? Because when you joined, uh, that would have been at the time that Althea Joan Lequant was,
1: <laughs> was at the uh,
0: helm of was... it. I was there.
1: Yes, I was there at that time. I think I joined at the end of 1970. I know that, I know that the case was going on. The Mangrove Nine, and it was it it was one of the kind of major items at that time because people would come back and report on the progress of the case. Um, They'd have certain people who would be allocated that they would be going to to the to be at the trial to be observers on, on on that day. I don't remember myself being directly involved so much in in it in in it by. By going to the court, I don't remember going to the court, but I do remember it was it was very important. Althea was, remember we had a a, a part of the group was also in North London, right? So she was not in um, in in South London as much. I was involved in the group that was on. On, on Shakespeare Road what I was most involved in was one I remember the study groups because when you first came in, not, not when you first came in I think everybody was involved in the study groups yes and you also had to be involved in door-to-door and because Brixton um, was my Patrick because that's where my school was I would I would do door-to-door I did door-to-door with Linton that's the two of us. That was one of the things that we had to do. And one of the things I was quite involved in quite a lot, which I didn't talk about in my last article, was in the um, was in the Saturday school, the supplementary school, because I was a teacher. I came there. Um, I think I was a couple of years older than a lot of the people. If you think that I'd gone away to college for three years and had come back. So I came back as a a teacher, and I was responsible, I'm not, I can't remember if I was responsible, but I know I was really involved in the Saturday school in going and getting, um, picking up the children. That's what we do, pick up the children and bring them to the school and take them back home. And so it was, it's quite a lot. And that that was my, one of my main contributions.
0: So you talk about going uh, door-to-door with uh, Linton Crazy Johnson. And my next yeah. question to you were, were the activities conducted by male panthers the same as the activities that were given to the female panther members?
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> you mean, are you trying to ask me about sexism? You're going to come to that? Yes. <laughs> no, we, I think they had male and female groups. I'm trying to remember if that, how... Um, Linton, and I were in a, also in, a, in an art, uh, a poetry group in the Panthers as well. Yeah. You know about that, yes. So we were in those kind of, based on our interests, because I was interested in writing poetry and he was, of course, interested in writing poetry and went on to become a poet. Um, but we would, there were, there probably would have been, they would see that there should be male and female going out together, right? Just that would be a better way way to work. I, I don't think there was directly, um, well, it could have been that they saw that the male is a protector, but I don't, I don't think so. Uh, but... Certainly, I wanted to go out because I knew um, a lot of the parents and where the parents lived. The people who had children on those roads of Lane and so on. Um, afterwards, uh, I, I was reading something that suggested to me that maybe some of the members thought that the um, that the school was something that was very female. I at the time I didn't I didn't think that I don't remember thinking that this was something that only women were involved in, and it might be. It might be that women were interested in teaching. I don't know, but I was a teacher, and I got involved in that because it allowed me to do some of the things um, I was doing in um, in school in the school I taught in in Brixton.
0: Now, you previously described the Black Panther movement as being an educational group for consciousness raising. In what way did your membership within the Panther movement? Influence the way you saw yourself and your identity?
1: It was very important, I think it was a very important group for a lot of people around at the time, people who were members, people who were associated with the groups and people who were friends of of people associated with the group because i think there there was a network of people who might not have come to all the study groups but would come maybe they would support maybe a demonstration or they might support one of the dances because we had a lot of those recreational activities, or might go to an open house when they had Youth League, I think it was Youth League at Oval House, those kinds of things. Um, And what it encouraged us to do, I think one, it encouraged you to be quite fearless in a way, to think that it was possible that what you did could make a difference. And would make a difference in the world and the difference you were making for other black people around the world so even though we started off and we saw ourselves as being based in one community my community then was Brixton you you also felt that you know you what you were doing could impact what was happening in Africa um, and that you could link with people in America and people in Jamaica, because even at that time, Jamaica was still very important, very important to me. I always felt that I was, um, I was, I was Jamaican. But um, yes, you felt, you felt, you felt powerful that the actions that you took could make a difference, and that black people should take action. Yes, so that's the idea of the activist <laughs> that you should. Just you know just sit around and, and wait for somebody else that you should get involved. You should get involved yeah.
0: I'll pick up on that point you just made about how you felt that you had an impact beyond your own locale so yeah. you knew that it was going to impact Africa and America. Did you feel that London being the metrop- the metropole did you feel that it was a center for debates around race and citizenship?
1: Um, I, I don't know if we, I'm trying to think if we felt that, we felt that it was important. I, I'm trying to be honest, just to think back if I felt at that time, yes, oh, to be in London. No, because you could go out to other places. I mean, we, we had networks in, in um, Birmingham and Manchester, certainly, Bristol. Cardiff, even <laughs> As places where we, we we would spread our wings and, uh, and network with the people, uh, with the people around. More and more, I, I, I'm seeing that London. Maybe more recently, I'm seeing that like, it was important that a lot of these these um, organisations. It's significant that a lot of them were in London, but I don't think if we we. We sat down and thought about it in that way. It's just where we were and where we landed as um, children of uh, of migrants. That's where they wanted the migrants, and that's where the children came, and that's where we we grew up, and that's where we had to, you know, make our stand.
0: In the history of um, black radicalism in Britain, from what I've seen, London has been quite an important battleground, so if you look at the tradition in the 30s, well the 1920s and 30s, with people like Uh C.L.R. James, Amy Ashwood Garvey, there does seem to be something about that capital that drew people who had radical ideas about changing the situation for black people.
1: Oh, you mean the centre of empire?
0: Yes, it seemed to draw people with different experiences of colonialism, Uh, Racism in America And then here they were meeting together
1: Yes, yes But do you think it's because people set out thinking We are going to London for that But there might be quite um, mundane reasons Why um, you would end up in London If you were recruited If London transport So there's a kind of reason of empire That the empire (laughs) sent out London transport um, went to the West Indies to to recruit um, people for their for the system. My father, that's where he worked. Yes, or the national, or who was the minister of health? It was Powell, wasn't it? You know Powell. I don't know if that's true. It was a minister of health who was recruiting um, nurses for the um, for the hospitals, and they would have been largely largely in London. So people, I suppose people gravitate to the center of empire because, and also I think people, you tend to want to be with, and that's the way I felt about Brixton certainly, you want to be in a place where there's a certain kind of comfort and safety and security that you find with people like yourself, especially in an atmosphere of hostility as well. Yeah?
0: And in your um, autoethnography you spoke about the tension between some of the members and the leadership within the movement Yeah, and um, I was wondering if you could talk to me about how those tensions played out.
1: I think the tension was between a leadership who might have been very clear about what they wanted to do and what they wanted to get out of their organization and there would have been younger members who, who came in with a lot of heat and who really wanted to take on um, take on the system and who might not have been so clear about, about some of the consequences. And let me say uh, frankly, I think a lot of A lot of people benefit many of us benefited from the movement and many of us came to to get a clear understanding of our society um, from studying and working in the movement and some people i think benefited materially or even career-wise but i think there are also some young people who were broken um by the movement i think there are people in when you for an example if you talk about um your attitude towards the police yes um you can talk about babylon system and the um and all those all those names that we call the police and all, uh, all of that but you take that if you're two or three of you are alone at night or if or if you get stopped by the police you know and there's enough of them you know that if you say certain things or if you do certain things you're going to get her they will arrest you for obstruction right now there are ways in which you handle the police it's only like in a few years later when we had um, more like law centers where you really had information about how you approach the police in order to still maintain your rights but also do do it in a way in which it wouldn't be inevitable that you would get You'd get arrested. That, that's one example. Do you understand what I mean? I don't know if if, if if you can see, but there, there, there are, as I said, who took who took the polemics as a way in which they should organize their everyday everyday lives, and it ended up with people getting. Sometimes it might only be you just get um, you might get a record, a police record. Which was some young black men is a very very serious is a very serious blot on your your other prospects. Or so people decided, you know, that it was um, it was petty bourgeois to have an education or to go to university, and bright bright people never went. Yeah. So if, so, like, and but there are other people who might have been saying it was petty bourgeois because they'd had an education. They'd already been to university. So I, I think there were some ways in which the um, the polemics um, uh, did not really live up to the way people live their lives. Yes, And there are some people who took it um, at, at face value. We don't want to kind of valorize uh, Uh, the way in which we operate and say that there weren't casualties in that way
0: I really liked um, what you wrote in your journal when you said that people looking at that history shouldn't Mm -hmm. view it as a monolith, they shouldn't see that everyone was agreeing on the same ideological debate Uh and I think it's so important that we include um, discussion about some of the debates that were going on when it came to gender when it came to generational divide within the movement So I think that's an important point to And and
1: it wasn't very big because the majority of the membership might have been between 17 and say 21, 22. I was on the older side of that. And also I said, because I'd been to, I'd been already been to college. So I had an education. I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have any debate about whether I should go to college or not. And say, don't bother with that, you know, it's Babylon system. Well, you know, Babylon I mean, system, this is still, still <laughs> you don't want to be to be signing on um um forever um so there, there was that so it'd have been like 17 to 21 but the older people now the, the people in the leadership they would have been like in their late 20s so it wasn't like a big you know that there was a lot of old people there are certainly enough people who had more a few more years experiences to to so they're able to make um, better or other judgments.
0: So once the Black Women's Group rose from the ashes, rose from the ashes, as you mentioned, did you have any um, alliances with white feminist groups, or did you feel that they didn't really care about the Black women's uh, experience?
1: Well, we had uh, links with. Because I can even remember from our reading, because we we had um, was really quite inclusive. Even though we start, the core was um, women from Panthers, and the other women almost immediately, people like Gurlin Bean, and she she had come from white women's group, Gail People from all over became black women from came from all different places or different spaces to be part of that group it was the first group it was the first time that black women were sitting and and talking about some of the things we felt were particularly important um to us i mean some um there were there are people who are against it they said we're just you know bourgeois women that we want to meet like that you know imitating you know white women and such like but it was women coming from all over with all different kind of issues. Um, we didn't, but we kind of struggled, and maybe we over um, emphasized the fact that we were political and it wasn't personal. So we concentrated on making sure that women from liberation movements were well represented in those that we had. We always talked about our campaigns in Southern Africa, invited women from those um, groups to attend our meetings. But yes, we had representation from, from everywhere. And we also, many of us were started to become involved in different groups in the community, like in parents groups, in anti-fascist, yes, anti-fascist, um, anti-racist groups, you know, because the National Front had a resurgence in the 70s. And our members were involved in that. You know, the, the, the women were working with the with the sus groups were also active. So there was a lot of cross fertilization, and we just we came together um, as women with all of those issues.
0: And one of the activities that took place was the creation of the Sabar bookshop.
1: Oh yes yes that was from the very beginning because the uh, I should say and this is important to say yes I didn't mean to leave it out at all at the same time as the B, uh, BWG started that same building was occupied by um, the bookshop that we started the bar bookshop um, with Ira, Ira O'Flaherty I don't know if you've heard of him no he was but he, but I don't think he's 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 been around since that time. Some people have just not made; <laughs> they've left. But let me just say, there was a member of the the Panthers who was also involved in book trading, who became central in Sabah books. Very important in it. Wouldn't have been able to do it without um, his involvement. Some people bring their strength, and that, that was his strength. It was the first of its kind in South London, really. Because at the time, you only had um, New Beacon in North London, you had chore in West London, and you had Sabaa Books in, in South London. Yeah.
0: So even before the bookshop, there were Black-owned media publications. So you had Black Voice for BUFP. Yes. You had uh, Freedom News. Why was the bookshop an important venture for your, your collective?
1: Oh, because you needed to have access to black content. You, can't, you, you couldn't really spend your day simply reading Black Voice <laughs> and Freedom News. It was very important, certainly, for this. the section we had on education. We started collect- collecting, so we had a strong section on the children's books and you also had all the books that we wanted to read as adults all the black literature coming out uh, coming some of it coming out of america some of it a bit of it coming out of africa wherever we could find it a lot of it came out of america of course but you needed to have a place where you could get black literature of course why would you even ask <laughs> I mean, of course we saw the, the the local newsletters, and there were many of them at the time.
0: Now, as we've touched upon, you were a teacher um, from early on, and yeah. I was wondering if you could tell the story about the Angela Davis poster and the school inspector.
1: <laughs> oh, because... I was teaching in my school, um, and of course i decorate my classroom with all kinds of posters, you know, of any, what I really always wanted to have were, were always wanted posters of black people, because I thought that, that's part of the education I was giving my children to know that, you know, black people can be on posters, can be on walls, and can be celebrated. And I had the poster Angela Davis that I bought for myself. I said, "Let me put it up in my my classroom," and it was the poster. I can't remember exactly the words. Um, this I think it was the spirit of the people. Is great. Was that the one? Is greater than the man's technology. I well. Anyway, it had a quote from Angela Davis, and in those days, the inspectors used to come in, the local authority inspectors would come in and would sit in your class or just have, come and have a chat with you. And when I knew that this one was coming, I was looking around the classroom to make sure everything was, was okay. And then I saw this poster. Ah, I think it said, the real criminals in our society are not those who inhabit the prisons, yes, but those who stolen the wealth. I think that was a quote. 'Cause I had several posters of, of her with, with different codes. And when I saw that code, I said, Oh no, this inspector is not going to fully appreciate the what I've put up. Mm-hmm. So I just turned over I just turned over the bottom of the the poster, pinned pinned it up, and he came in and talked to me and he was very happy with what I was teaching and with the books. Um, he was he was okay with um, having black literature, but I think the Angela Davies poster about the real criminals in society, um, I think might have been a bridge too far for him. But it was fine after that, after he left. I got a, a good grade as a first year teacher.
0: And you had a mixed, uh, you had mixed pupils within your class and you te- speak about teaching them black history, listening to yes. black music during the classes. And today that would be classed as decolonizing the curriculum.
1: That's what I realise. You know, when you hear these terms, that you know, you say, "Oh, so that's what they mean." I've heard about this term, decolonizing the curriculum, and we're talking about something I was doing in 19, between 1970. I, I taught those children between 1970 and 1975. I was at that school, and 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 to me, that was the that was the only way. You had to teach about the content that was relevant to them. You had to teach about Africa, but not just Africa. Yes, we had the stories about African plants and animals, but also about African people who were freedom fighters, who were actually fighting to free up their land. So they knew about Mandela and Amilcar Cabral and Samora Marshall and those people as well. And, And you and you could, you could. It's a way in which you can simplify those stories. So you talk about people all fighting to um, to free their land, as well as telling them all the you know great ancient stories of, you know, Shaka and all those others as well, and also the Jamaican equivalent. So they knew about Marcus Garvey and the Rastafarians and what you know, the flora and fauna. Of Jamaica uh, and the Caribbean, and that kind of curriculum, I think, is really, is really to strengthen uh, each individual child. The child also needs a kind of defence against the negativity that they were experienced at that particular time. Negativity that I remembered, I remembered, you know, shouting that somebody was calling me black. They saying, no, "I'm not black," and holding up, like um, I think it was a blackberry. It They said, "No, I'm not black." And I didn't want the children I was teaching to be going through that and having that sense of, you know, that they weren't um, worthy and so on.
0: And I just think how fortunate those kids must have been because even today we don't get taught black history. So if in the 1970s you were teaching them black history and we haven't caught up yet, I I don't know what's happening
1: well i don't well that's why you have to talk about and and i saying that was why the bookshop that was why the saturday school was important and that was why the bookshop um was important to have those books and that's why the black studies movements and those things that came out of um, early those early years that's why it's important but somewhere along the way we stopped i don't know if i don't know why we stopped Maybe that's another story about when things get um institutionalized they kind of lose their way sometimes i think um we stop doing that so we have to go back to decolonizing the um, the curriculum now
0: and i wanted to move on to talking a bit about today and i wanted to ask you do you think black radicalism is still relevant for 21st century britain
1: yeah of course it is of course it is i think there's never an age where you don't have to um, uh, to make a stand, because I think if you don't, sometimes I think it go it goes backwards. Because if you think about those those earlier times when we when we we talked about um, opposition to police brutality, I think you still see that now, even today, in America, and I'm sure certain same things in, in in the UK and in other countries the black lives matter movement is a continuation of that of that kind of opposition to police brutality when we were um, making the stand through things like squatting about about bad housing what could have been worse than the Grenfell fire in in looking at something like bad um, bad housing. When you talk about ESN, that was something else, educationally subnormal schools being stuffed full of black children. Nowadays, I might not call them ESN schools, but you still have, well, I won't say you still have. I know of things that we used to have intermediate, like sin bins and disruptive units, and I'm sure they have a name for them today. Where they where those children are housed, maybe not so harshly, who are seen as being um, unable to to fit into the school system. I don't know what they call them now because I'm not there this time, but I don't think you eradicate most of those problems have been eradicated. Some of them have been ameliorated, but they, but they you need to you need to keep up the kind of pressure. As I always say to young people, you know, you can make, you can make gains, but they're always provisional. They can always be taken away. And if you're not vigilant, you know, that is likely to be what happens.
0: And the black power movement in the seventies coalesced around this idea of political blackness. And in the UK,
1: that I don't, that's another one like decolonizing the curriculum. You have to explain political blackness to those people. I think it's a university term, right?
0: Political blackness um, was the idea that if you weren't white, you could join together under the brand black. So whether yes. you were Asian, uh, yes. whether you were from China, you could come yeah. together against racism.
1: Yes, very good explanation.
0: That. That's an issue that's caused a lot of controversy um, in recent years because a lot of Lord. a lot of black people today think that there's so so much that differentiates the different groups that they shouldn't be co- uh, collectively uh, acting together. Do you believe political blackness is something that we should aim to do today, or do you think it's something of an era gone by?
1: Oh, I don't i don't know i think it was needed at the time it was very relevant it's the way you spoke back to empire and the way you understood what um colonialism and imperialism actually meant because as we said then um we're here because you were there and they didn't just go into africa they went into asia and they went into Certainly went into China, Southeast Asia, and all those other places. So it was it was really a way of responding um, to colonialism and anti imperialism. I think I think maybe today the issues that particularly young pe- well not just young people but let's say young people face might be different, and they have to find their own way of articulating it um rather than um you know latch on a particular term that was used then i mean before that you had terms like negritude yes we don't say that negritude was uh, a terrible term i think it was it was good and it was right for its time yes at that particular period we had to include everyone to in order to make that stand against um those acts of racism that that we're experiencing and the way it was being experienced so i think that interrogation has to go on and it's not about whether it's right or whether it's wrong it was of its time and yes you should interrogate it and see whether it's necessary
0: now and we see that today again black women are still the most marginalized group in society what is your message to the Black women of today, and how would you advise them to move forward?
1: You've always been like the bedrock of of all the, the struggles that Black people have waged, certainly in, in the UK. That hasn't always been recognised, but, and it's not, um, and we've like myself, we've been through one phase of it, but as Stella would say, a luta continua. It still goes on, and that we've made some gains, but they are provisional, and there's lots more work that needs to be done. And you have to you have to continue, but but recognize that there's no you don't have to make any apologies for what you do. Is that you are. You know, we are strong and fierce people.
0: Dr. Beverly Bryan, thank you so much for agreeing to this interview.